Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks so much for being with us. For the third week in a row, Afghanistan dominates the news and our thoughts. Latest news is that an airstrike hit a target in near Kabul airport, and apparently it was either a van or a truck that was full of explosives. Um, no word yet. I'm sure we'll get further word further down the road as to the number of casualties there. However, we do know 170 people were killed near Kabul, Air, Kabul airport as a suicide bomber did his worst. That doesn't include the 13 U.S. soldiers killed, 11 of them Marines. We honor their service and their sacrifice as we mourn their loss. The U.S. did retaliate, conducting a drone strike that reportedly killed the planner of the bomb attack, a member of ISIS-K, which claimed credit for the terror attack. At the same time, U.S. authorities are telling both U.S. citizens and Afghans seeking to leave the country to leave the immediate area of Kabul airport. They're saying there's a great danger of yet another terror attack. Hopefully, that airstrike eliminated or certainly minimized that particular threat. Much as it pains me to talk about the political consequences of this chaotic withdrawal from a 20-year war, a few things need to be said. Like it or not, President Joe Biden will end up taking a great deal of the weight for the slapdash nature of the Allied withdrawal. As I said last episode, you can blame Donald Trump for negotiating the pullout. You can blame Barack Obama for the troop surge that became mission creep. And you can blame George W. Bush for invading in the first place. Blame at this point does nothing but score cheap political points. Yet despite the loss of more than 2,000 U.S. troops and spending an eye-watering $2.26 trillion to oust the Taliban, install a new government, train and equip an Afghan military that in the end ran away from the Taliban, there are those who made a profit during the war. And in some cases, the numbers of of their profit are also eye-watering. Who made out like bandits in the Afghan war? American defense contractors. That's who. And I know you'll see a couple of articles say, well, they didn't really make that much money. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Quiet as is kept, the military farmed out much of the logistics of the war to private security contractors. According to The Intercept, the five biggest U.S. defense contractors, Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman, all got a big piece of the war spending pie. Other corporate interests also made big money, as an example, training the Afghan police force. Not sure what we got out of that. What's amazing about all this money spent is that it almost never becomes part of the conversation when it comes to accountability. With all these big money corporations making all this money, did it ever dawn on anybody to have them handle the logistics of the drawdown and pullout from Afghanistan? It seems like it would be their patriotic duty to volunteer their help. Maybe they did, and I just didn't hear about it. It's possible. Make no mistake, the withdrawal was shambolic, and that's the responsibility of politicians, starting with the President of the United States. I know my first reaction on hearing about the deaths of those soldiers and Afghan people was, listen, Joe. Tell the Taliban in no uncertain terms that you hold them responsible 
for the safety and security of those wishing to leave via Kabul airport. I would have sent as many soldiers as necessary to make that happen, and God help anyone that got in their way. I would have told the Taliban the August 31st deadline is now moot, and there are reports that uh, that deadline is now a little bit more fluid than it was. The deadline ought to be when Joe Biden says it is. It's true that I'm saying this in anger, in anger that I know this president feels. Yet he seems not to want to play hardball, the drone strike notwithstanding. The next step, of course, is not pointing the fingers of blame, since there are too many people and too many institutions that bear some level of responsibility. The key here is to learn from the mistakes of the recent and now distant past. One is this. The Taliban is now sitting on some of the biggest mineral deposits in the world. All told, estimates are on the order of a trillion dollars. One of those mineral deposits is lithium. That is, the same lithium that's used to power electric cars of the present and future. The U.S. does have some leverage on this, given that billions of dollars in Taliban funds are now frozen in U.S. banks. The U.S. is also looking at the position of China in Afghanistan. And see, this is interesting because, of course, China does share a border with Afghanistan, something that we, unfortunately, do not. They'll certainly be, the Chinese that is, as interested in those same mineral wealth deposits that interest us. And they see themselves as our major competition in just about everything. Is there much, if anything, Joe Biden can do to save face here? Not in the short term. I believe his best bet is to take the hit to his poll numbers, his popularity, whatever, get people home safely, and most of all, and this is the most important part because it's very difficult and painful for politicians to do this, level with the American people about what went wrong. Then he must pledge it will never, ever happen again. He must also show leadership to Democrats in Congress so that to, to the extent possible, partisan bickering is kept to a minimum. He is also going to have to assure those allies in NATO that the U.S. remains a serious partner in promoting peace and security around the world. When we come back, why are so many healthcare workers refusing to get vaccinated against COVID-19? Some possible answers when we come back. This is The Intersection. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your boy, Fab Five Freddy, and I'm live and direct, home in Harlem, tuned in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection is live, y'all. Tune in. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. One of the most controversial aspects of the coronavirus response is the so-called vaccine mandate. Elected officials in cities and states across the country are imposing these mandates on some workers, particularly in the healthcare sector. It comes as a bit of a surprise then that a substantial minority of healthcare workers are either hesitant to get vaccinated or out and out refusing the jab completely. It's true in the UK. It's true in the U.S., 
The numbers are startling. Up to a third of workers in America's 50 largest hospitals are either hesitant or refusing. If these hospitals then begin firing those workers, which if you have a vaccine mandate and people aren't down and people aren't willing to follow it, I guess your leverage is firing them. So if that happens, and it's entirely possible it might, who will take up the slack? You know, you just can't hire healthcare workers uh, without training and throw them into the fray, as it were. And by the way, those same numbers hold true for nursing home workers. These are people who come into daily contact with the clinically vulnerable. When you hear about numbers like these, the first question may be, what do these workers, some of whom even work on wars with COVID patients, know that the rest of us don't know? One thing is clear. Trying to guilt or coerce workers into getting the vaccine does not work well, if at all. Some people, and I know this is going to sound strange to folks, but some people would rather look for another line of work than to, in their view, give up the freedom not to have the jab. That's right. There are people who say, look, I, I don't want it, and I want to be free of having to get it. So if you start from the premise that understanding the reasons for hesitancy and refusal is the best way to change minds, let's start with the whys. Some healthcare workers, like the general public, are hesitant. It helps to understand that the vaccine's use was authorized over a short period of time. Too short, according to some medical professionals. Not all, but some. Even the final FDA approval, for example, of the Pfizer vaccine, which is fairly recent, came too little too late for some. There also appear to be some misunderstandings about the vaccines themselves. There are questions about whether the technology used to create the first two vaccines, approved for emergency use, was new. Turns out it wasn't. These, however, are questions that deserve answers, and medical people who are hesitant about receiving or recommending them should have them answered by medical professionals they respect. It is not good enough to try and browbeat people, coerce people, shame people into getting a jab that they don't want or that they're hesitant to take. There's nothing, I believe, that will make a vaccine-hesitant person and turn them into a vaccine refuser is that kind of shaming. Another reason for the hesitancy, and in some cases refusal, has to do with just plain distrust. There's been a ton of mixed messaging about masks, the vaccines themselves, and mandates. Some of it is not deliberately deceptive, but some of it is definitely on the fringe. Just today, I got a newspaper called The Light dropped through my mail slot. The headline read, The Science Delusion. Suffice to say it was strongly, you might say rapidly, against the prevailing wisdom about COVID, masks, vaccine, the whole nine yards. One article took journalists to task for not pushing back against what they call a government line on all this. Now think for a moment. Suppose you have a family member or loved one working in healthcare. 
They tell you of their fears about the vaccine. You, in turn, tell other family members and friends about that concern. And so hesitancy and mistrust is spread exponentially. This is not about evil intent in most cases. See, because, you know, if somebody in your family tells you, and these are people who have worked in some instances right through the pandemic, and they say to you, you know what, I'm really not sure about this stuff. I'm not sure about the vaccine. You know, they rushed it out. They didn't do the trials properly. Whatever they have been told, whatever they've seen on Fox News, whatever. And by the way, we have seen instances now more than once where people who were rabidly anti-vax got sick and saw the light just before they died. And that is a shame. But if you have healthcare workers in your family and these people are nervous, you're gonna be nervous. It's as simple as that. It's not evil intent. It's not that they're, you know, although there are some people who are, for example, trying to sell products off of all this, but it's not about evil intent, I don't believe, in most cases. The healthcare workers care for the most vulnerable people in our society. You might ask yourself, why would they believe this misinformation that's out here, especially from people who are selling products along with the snake oil? Because the misinformation is being promoted as true through a lot of the media. In addition to this, you cannot discount the issue of personal freedom, which I mentioned earlier. Healthcare workers have endured multiple lockdowns, which has limited what they could and couldn't do. They could go to work, but they couldn't take their family out to dinner. They could go to work, but they couldn't attend a loved one's funeral. They could go to work, but their kids couldn't go to school. That wears on you especially after 18 months of this. And from the perspective of a healthcare worker, here comes the same people who really did limit their freedom, getting ready to do it yet again. Many healthcare workers don't think the government, which they don't trust anyway, have paid the slightest bit of attention to their overall concerns, especially mental health concerns. Why should they believe that same bunch of bureaucrats now suddenly care, especially since they're making demands. It may not seem to make sense, and I may disagree vehemently with their position, but the first step to establishing dialogue with people you disagree with is understanding. The rest is work that still needs to be done. And finally, the travel business has taken it on the chin for the past year and a half. What is the prognosis for the future? We'll talk with a travel professional who also happens to be the executive producer of this podcast and my wife. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. No matter what means you try to use, travel during the age of COVID has been tough, if not impossible in some cases. Can you travel? If so, where can you travel? Do you have to quarantine? If so, for how long? 
Can you get refunds if your trip is suddenly canceled? Here to answer some of those questions and more is a seasoned travel professional who is also the executive producer of this podcast and my wife, Miss Kim Jack Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Most people know, even if you're not trying to travel, that the travel business has taken it on the chin, very much on the chin over the past 18 months. I was thinking about trying to get somebody to talk about this, and then I thought to myself, well, who better to talk about it than a person who is a seasoned travel professional, the executive producer of this podcast, and dare I say it, my wife as well. We welcome Ms. Kim Jack Riley. How are you? Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm fine, thank Good. you. Good. Let's start by where we are at uh, at this point. Let's start where the travel industry is now, and then we can go back a little bit and talk about how the travel industry got to this point. How bad is it now? Is the travel industry actually starting to recover? Well, I'd say it is in a recovery period. But it's a matter of how long that period is going to last. And with all wishful thinking, it's important to stay optimistic, obviously. Um, but at the same time, one has to be realistic. So is it in recovery? Yes, for those of us who work in the industry, there are really strong indicators and really strong signs that um, things are changing for the better. But is it in recovery for the average traveler? That's a completely different story. Well, the average traveler has also been kind of taking it on the chin uh, in terms of trying to get refunds when their trips were suddenly canceled and that sort of thing. But let's look at some of the components of the travel industry. Uh, let's look, first of all, at the cruise ship industry. Uh, how badly were they hurt? And are they now, when people hear about all these offers, that are being on uh, being preferred on television. Uh, how realistic is it that these cruise ships are in fact going to be able to make these trips? Well, you know that's one of the things that has been um, a concern for me, Mark, because I straddle both worlds. I work in the industry, but I'm also a consumer as well. So I really want to look out for my fellow travelers, consumers that is, um, but at the same time, once again, it's the word be realistic. Optimistically, um, the cruise industry um, is once again trying to be on a rebound, but the fact of, of the matter is that they, of all of the segments of the travel industry, really took it the hardest. Why? Is because that prior to COVID, if all things were ideal conditions, cruising was possibly, arguably, the most risky health-wise in the first place. Why is it? So if anyone um, listening has ever been on a cruise, um, they would know that the first thing that you do before you or as you are even stepping foot onto your ship people are standing there, staff are standing there with antibacterial wipes. All of the precautions that we now take as everyday standard just in daily life 
these are the things that a cruiser would have had to do long before COVID, simply because the environment, the travel environment that they're getting ready to embark into is one of restriction. You're going into a closed environment. Um, some staterooms, um, which are what all cabins are called, uh, don't even have windows. So some staterooms literally only have their sort of internal vent system to get air. That alone tells you that, you know, if your your neighbor three staterooms down the hall catches a cold, that germ easily travels throughout the cruise ship. So given that environment, that's why cruising again prior to COVID was already probably one of the highest risk um, modes of of having a holiday or traveling anywhere. And then along comes COVID and we heard these horror stories about people getting sick on ships. And there was a question at one point, I think it was a, a, a ship and you can kind of enlighten me on this. There was a ship that was, I think, trying to dock somewhere on the West Coast. And uh, in point of fact, uh, they wanted people to be kept on the ship. Uh, at least some people did. What, what was that all about? Well, that brings us to uh, it possibly the question of, you know, where can you go now? What, where is it safe to go now? And that all is determined by your destination, where the ship is going to, to dock, where is it going to port and let all these people come off. And so the governance of your destination is really what determines whether or not you can literally get off the ship. So if you dock somewhere and that government has determined that unless you've had a vaccination or and can prove that it's negative or unless you, um, you know, are going to go into quarantine immediately, then you can't get off the ship. So the ship can't dock. Um, so that's the sort of environment that cruising is facing at the moment. And how are they responding to this? I had heard somewhere that uh, the governor of Florida had uh, uh, issued an executive order about mask mandates on ships. And then I think it was, was it the Bahamas or someplace where there are a lot of ships that are registered, turned around and said, well, no, you did have to have a mask mandate in order for those ships to be docked in virtually anywhere in the Caribbean. Is it, has it come to that? Well, really, to be fair, um, it, it's a dynamic situation, meaning it is literally changing as we speak. You know, I think everyone at this point has become used to making plans um, and you, you make your plans, it could be a week in advance, but by the time that week comes around and you get tested, anything could have happened and you've no longer got a negative COVID test. So again, to be fair to the governments and the governing bodies, um, they are just living dynamically and the rules can change that quickly. I think you've heard um, just shifting to sort of another uh, category of travel which is where people have flown somewhere for their holiday um, checked into their hotel having a lovely time but whilst they're there in that destination 
on holiday, the rules changed, and they're not allowed actually to travel back to their home country. I've heard so a lot about that. Stuck yeah. in the place, and so that's the sort of thing that again, if you're on a cruise ship, the destination would rather you just don't get off the ship in the first place than have you know could be up to a thousand passengers that are um, debarking onto the, onto their territory. And what if any one of them is, is ill? Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, I mean, if you're advising someone that's thinking about going on a, uh, on a cruise, um, for a long time, it seemed as though people were saying, well, uh, back in what, March, April, May, people were saying, well, okay, maybe I'll try to book for November or December or maybe even next spring, spring of 2022. What would you advise people if they feel like they really want to go on a cruise? What is the minimum time you think uh, would be the best to make sure that cruise, in fact, happens? Well, it is literally impossible to put a time frame on that sort of thing. Um, that withstanding, people do need to live their life. Um, not in fear and in hope that they have something to look forward to. So what's happening is that, um, for example, um, you know, we have people who are saying, well, I'm just going to book for mid-2022. So they're sort of guesstimating that by then everything will be cleared with COVID. But it is still a guess. So my advice is that rather than um, pinpoint your destination um, that specifically and get your hopes up for a specific space and des destination, think about the destination in terms of the what-ifs. So previously you might have said, my bucket list, let's take my own, is Bali. Um, so my bucket list, you know, any day of the week, if I've got a choice, that's where I want to go again one day. Um, but now I'm going to look at my choices differently by saying, what if? What if I'm on a cruise ship and I do get ill? Um, and I did want to actually make this point to you, Mark, that something people really should take into consideration is that... Um, when you're on a cruise ship um, with, let's say, a thousand passengers, uh, typically you may have, and this would be a very good cruise line, might have two doctors on board. Um, so if you think about that, you know, percentage wise, if one person gets sick, but if one person gets sick with a contagious illness, two doctors just simply aren't enough. So I take you back to say, think about the what ifs. What if I'm on a cruise ship and I get ill? Well, for me, I'd rather not get on a cruise ship for that reason. Um, what if I go to Bali and I get ill and I'm, you know, Bali's not equipped with the medical care that I might need? So you really have, my advice is that you have to start looking at your destinations based on the what-ifs something might happen. Let's look now at air travel. We, you referenced it a little bit earlier. Um, air travel has had a dizzying array 
of regulations, mixed messages, to be honest. Uh, and even in, in the States, uh, mixed uh, messages and mixed regulations and guidelines about where you can go, what you have to have. Do you have to have quarantine? Do you have to have a ne negative test? There are all these different regulations. Um, how difficult is it to travel by air at this point? If, for example, you wanted to go from New York to Athens, what kind of, uh, and I know you may not know what the Greek regulations are right now, but how fluid are the regulations such that that may be problematic if you decide to go? It is fluid and it's a great question because um, this really is the absolutely imperative reason why I would advise anyone who is planning to travel, use a travel agent. What that does, um, the travel agent has access to software that the consumer cannot access. And that software is telling us exactly the answer to your question in real time. So for example, if you came to me and asked me that question for your travel, I being a registered agent can now go into the software, plug in your departure city and your destination, and it will, you know, and tell me what the rules and regulations are and you're you're pointing out just some of them i mean there's so many to consider um first of all it's from your departure what do you need in terms of proof of vaccination that's um, just to get on the that's plane. just to get on the plane um then of course it's when you arrive um is it proof of vaccination probably yes and it could be also do, you, do they require quarantine in that destination? Could be yes, and some places are not. But again, all of that is happening in real time. What can make it even worse is if you are doing a connecting flight. Why is that worse? Because you might be, for example, if you're on a long haul, which would take you from, let's say, New York to the Maldives, First, you've got to, or sorry, I should say, if you're going from California even, you might have to stop at New York first, where they might have um, a different set of regulations state to state, um, just for you to inhabit the airport in New York. And then you're going to get on a plane that might take you to any points in Europe, which will have a completely new set of regulations. And then you go to the Maldives where they've got their own set. So my point there is that the less amount of times you have to um, cross through regulations, the better. Um, you really want to aim for a, a direct flight if possible. And a travel agent is the best way to go. It's interesting because I had heard that travel agents were being used less and less and that in fact, a lot of air travelers we're simply going to the airlines directly and bypassing traveling. And that can be done. But I would say that for you to do that, you're t at this point during COVID, which we're still in, is really taking on the ultimate risk. Back to the point about what ifs. So what if the flight's canceled? 
what if you get somewhere and you can't get back who do you call and um, sorry to say but there are even um, consortiums I won't name any but when each of us uh, you know we check our flights to see if we can get it cheaper on places that are more sort of a bargain warehouse place those places don't have 24 7 agents waiting for your call should a disaster happen in while you're traveling so to to do any of that without the insurance so to speak of a travel agent i would say i would not advise that at all now i want to talk about something that i know people in the public are concerned about we had a situation where we had to deal with it what happens if a flight does get canceled how do you get your money back um it's it's a difficult question because um I literally have just had a friend who works in the travel industry and knows it intimately. So I say that to say he would have known every single um, T to cross and I to dot along the journey. Um, he traveled from uh, Tennessee to Chicago and on trying to get back from Chicago, the flights, sorry, he had to uh, connect through Chicago, but Chicago was experiencing bad weather, so the flight was canceled through Chicago, and they had to make their own way back to Tennessee by alternate means. The point is that he explained there were no repercussions, no reimbursements available, not even a cup of tea, um, you know, or a free cocktail because it was an act of God. So there again is an example. If he had gone through a, an agency that it comes with, um, you know, insurances built in, they may be able to retrieve, not, not particularly help in the moment, but at least retrieve some sort of reimbursement for that happening. So at the moment, COVID is still precariously considered mostly an act of God that's out of human hands. So that means that the airline is under no obligation to refund you? I mean, I've heard a lot about uh, airlines uh, on some level uh, offering vouchers or, or some kind of make goods. But uh, for a lot of people, a voucher doesn't mean anything. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, and I don't want to lose that thought because I want to talk about the haves and the have-nots. But I would answer the question by saying um, it depends on the airline. And I'll use a personal example and say that um, there were three flights um, that we had booked mm -hmm. um, that we really deserved reimbursement from all three flights. That means complete refunds. Complete refunds. The flights were cancelled through no fault of our own, and it was all under the auspices of COVID. Two of the airlines out of the three have reimbursed us. The third has not. So it just really goes into the conversation of saying, just like the clothes you wear or the food you might eat, also choose your travel 
companies wisely as well because not all airlines operate with the same ethics ethics as each other um, but I did want to just jump onto there um, which I think is really important for your audience to think about and that is the danger that we're approaching um, is that travel itself is becoming something that only the wealthy can afford to do. Well, that's the way it used to be at one time. That's the way it used to be. Um, but fortunately for many of us, um, it became something that we could build into um, our budgets. But now, in addition to your holiday budget, you really have to build in that emergency money if you get stuck somewhere. How are you supposed to stay in a hotel for an extra two weeks. Um, just all the logistics of what that might incur. Your job might not be um, compassionate about you being stuck somewhere. Sure, and if you're in a family, uh, even the PCR tests, which a lot of places Another require, one, right. some places are charging $150, $200 per person mm -hmm. for a PCR test, which means a family of four is now incurring an extra $800 in additional expense, which for a lot of people could be a vacation killer. Exactly, exactly. So just to bring it back again to, um, you know, the positive aspects, travel is on its way to recovery, but it's really important, I think, to not look back and think that you can travel the way we used to travel. It's a new world now, and as you plan your travel ahead, you really have to plan for, again, back to, I'm sorry to keep repeating that, but it's so important to say plan for the what ifs. You, you know, the basics are still going to be there. You can buy suntan lotion when you get there. You can buy an extra swimsuit if you need it, um, whatever it is. But the COVID factor has presented a lot of other what ifs that you need to think about before you go. Finally, then, you're saying that air travel, cruise ships, etc., even rail travel, may never go back to the way it was before the coronavirus? They Is that will, what you're saying? They will never go back because you're, you, you are looking at an environmentally impacted situation that is literally not really under human control. Um, so we really have to revise the way you travel. You can't just um, bundle up, uh, you know, in a in a bus uh, that has capacity of fifty two people anymore. You've got to have room for for air. Um, so there's just lots of different variables that you have to fit into your plan that you didn't have to before. Kim Jack Riley, thank you very much. I think this has been a very enlightening and informative conversation. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.